Yeah. Our reading is uh, Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 27. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others said one, that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of all the holy angels. But I, will, but I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. going to do something a little bit unconventional today. Um, last week, I preached from this exact same text, Luke chapter 9, verses 18 and 27, and I gave actually a very hard message. And, and the crux of that message is that if you are a follower of Jesus, you are called to pick up a cross. And just as he said that he must suffer and would be rejected by all the so-called important people of his time. Um, that may be, in some sense, there will be a suffering in our time for us where we pick up a cross. And it is not some kind of incidental portion of our life. That it may very well be the very will of God that there will be some form of suffering to the very center of your life which we must pick up. And we must taste and know of the goodness of God in and through the suffering, not apart from it. And so one of the things I said last week is, if you have a picture of a good life, if you have a picture of a good life, and whatever your picture of a good life is, there's utterly no suffering in it because that's your perfect good life. And if that's the only life that you think you're going to have, then in a very real way, you don't know what it means to follow Jesus. You are seeking a life which isn't really a good enough life from God's eyes. Um, so it's a big and hard message. And if you, if you didn't hear that message, I encourage you to go on our website and, and go ahead and listen to that message because what I'm going to do today really is actually a continuation of that message. In some ways, all week long, I was thinking, I don't actually have to come up with a new message. I'm trying to fill out what I wanted to say last week, but of course I already, you know, go long enough as it is. So let me take a look at the clock right now. Um, what, what I wanted to do this week, which is really an extension of last week's message, is to help you see just some pictures of what this could look like. I'm talking about 
something that may sound very strange. And I said that if you have this dream, because this is going to be my life, this good life, and everything is so-called pristine and perfect without being touched by suffering in any real way, whether it's your own personal suffering or the suffering of somebody close to you, if that's your life, when Jesus says, if you were to save your life, you must lose it, lose it that life, <laughs> this so-called good life, that's what has to go. That's what you must lose. <laughs> and embrace a life where you pick up a cross daily, as he says, pick up your cross daily, and there may be a suffering that isn't easy. It, it happens repeatedly. <laughs> It happens again and again. And this may be at the center of your life. And as you do this, you're picking up a cross and entering into the suffering with Jesus, for Jesus. And therein, you'll find out a new life given to you through Jesus. <laughs> so, um, I, I, what I wanted to do today is, I, I know this is a, it's like a big and huge concept and it's hard to even just get even get our minds wrapped around it and for some of you you listen to your this preacher say this really weird thing from this really weird passage because it is a mysterious thing that Jesus is saying what do you mean pick up a cross and um, what I want to do today was to just give you some some examples and tell you some stories so that this thing that I'm talking about is not some weird thing. It's not some weird, super holy thing. Actually, normal holiness. Normal holiness, which is basically just a new resurrection life of Jesus being emerged out of us, is really the most wonderful thing. And so um, I want to just share some stories with you in three parts. Um, Part one, um, grief. Grief. I'm going to talk about the suffering of grief in someone I know who has gone through it in a very powerful way. Uh, part two, special needs. It's a really important issue. And there are many invisible people in our society because they have special needs. And they are not seen in any way as included in a good life, quite frankly. They're excluded from the good life, including being a part of my life. And I want to give you a picture of something that differs from that. And part three, the powerful comfort of God. Um, there's a remarkable passage that I want to share with you that talks about how if you live this way, there will be a comfort that's astounding. That can only come from heaven. That can only be by grace. Part one, grief. This past week, a book came out. So I, I was been, I've been thinking all this week, and actually for the last two weeks, uh, what stories that I want to tell you of people who pick up their cross daily and instead of railing at God for their suffering or just screaming for God, please take this away, Instead, actually picking up their suffering and allowing Jesus to be Jesus right in the thick of their life where there's this hurt. And 
This week I got an email, and so when I got that email, <laughs> I got this email of a new book that just came out. And when this book came out, I knew that was, it's kind of a weird experience. I don't know if, it was a weird experience because as soon as I saw that email, I felt like Jesus dropped my sermon illustration into my lap. Okay, I mean, this happens every now and then, okay? And the book is called Grief Undone, and it's written by somebody I personally know. It's written by a woman named um, Elizabeth Groves. Uh, for those people who know her, they, they call her Libby. She goes, she goes by Libby Groves. And um, this book came out, so if you're interested at all, and if you know anybody who uh, has gone through the pain of losing a loved one, because that's what the book is about, Grief Undone. So some background and one of the reasons why this book was so worthwhile for me is because I know some, since I personally know her, I'm not super close to her. Um, I know something of this story. So let me give you a background on this story. Um, Libby Groves is the wife of Al Groves, J. Allen Groves. Al Groves was professor of Old Testament at Westminster Seminary. And he was there when I worked on my Ph.D. at that seminary. Um, he wasn't in my department. I'm, I was in systematic theology, and he's an Old Testament professor. And so I, I, I did not, I think I audited one class with uh, Al Groves. And I only remember a couple things he said in that class, and they're not especially very super memorable. Um, I knew Al more as my elder at church because uh, for almost five years, my wife and I went to the same church as him, well, we didn't get to be in church together for the whole time because during the time when we started going to the church, he was, Al was one of the elders, was diagnosed with melanoma. And that's a form of skin cancer. And they say that if melanoma is treated before the cancer reaches below the skin and into the lymph system, you have a chance of surviving, even though your chances aren't good, even then. Because melanoma is a pretty... It's a very serious cancer, and there are certain versions of it. And, um, but if you have the certain malignant version, it's pretty much a death sentence. And, and Al was diagnosed with that, and then tumors started showing up in his lungs. And there's a portion in the book. And so the book is called Grief Undone, and it takes you through... The winter, spring, fall of about 2006, of after Al was diagnosed, what they went through throughout all his cancer as he began to decline in cancer and his death, and then what it was like after, after he passed away. And we were at church. We were at this church. We watched this unfurl. This is a drama that unfurled right in our church. So I'm not telling you a story about somebody that's, that's in another country or from another time. I'm talking about 2006. It's nine years ago in Philadelphia. And these are people that if you met them, they could be your neighbors. They could be your friends. They're just regular Christians, the kind of people that you and I could know. If you met Al Groves, you wouldn't know that he's a brilliant professor of Old Testament. You would not know that. And he would never tell you that. He wouldn't, tell, he wouldn't go out of his way to tell you, guess what? I'm a professor of Old Testament, 
at one of the most famous seminaries in the world. He wouldn't, he wouldn't even bother to tell you that because Al is super humble. <laughs> He's one of the most gentle, humble men that you will ever meet. And I, I'm not just saying that because I'm preaching about him. It's really, really true. <laughs> There's nobody I ever met who ever knew Al with any kind of personal level of connection that didn't admire him. <laughs> And I only had certain interactions with Al Groves. Actually, he was a professor in, in, in my seminary, but when I talked to him, we talked about movies. <laughs> because Al ran a movie discussion group in the seminary, and we talked about, um, I remember the two movies that we talked about. One was Do the Right Thing, <laughs> and the other one, was, uh, what's the Harrison Ford movie where, where he's supposed to um, hunt down replicants? A Blade Runner. He loves that movie, Blade Runner. And he sees the gospel in the movie Blade Runner. And when he first said that to me, I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I was like, I don't see the gospel in Blade Runner. And so that made me watch the whole movie all over again, trying to see what Al sees. Um, and... The community, when we first, when my wife and I first started going to New Life Presbyterian Church of Glenside, not long after we joined a, a, one of their small groups, um, which they, today they call community groups too, um, not unlike us. And our community group leader was a guy named Jim. And Jim essentially was mentored by Al. And I often felt that when Jim would love us and would encourage our group, he was channeling Al. <laughs> That's how I felt. And he, he would talk about things he learned in conversations and um, examples from Al. And there are stories like this throughout this book. And what this book is about, and so if, you're, if you know anybody who's gone through this type of grief, or maybe is going through this grief, I, I, I recommend that you pick up this book. I got it. I, I couldn't wait to, for it to arrive, so I just got it on Kindle. And there are a lot of chapters in this book. And she keeps them short because she knew that grieving people would read this book. And she knew that grieving people couldn't read for very long. So you have like, you have like three-page chapters, four-page chapters. They're very short chapters. And she'd give you these snippets, snippets, snippets. And they, for, they were formed because she and her husband wrote a blog because they were so connected... Because Al had touched so many people over the years, either through the church or, or through his, uh, as, a, as a professor, as a teacher in the seminary, that literally people from other countries would call them <laughs> and email them on Al's progress when the news went out that Al was dying. <laughs> and um, so just a couple of stories from this. There is, there is, a, there is a searing story when this is before Al passed away, and there are tumors now starting to form in his brain. <laughs> and he's starting to decline. And they are invited to a wedding of, of, a, of, a, of a woman named Lisa Welch, who is the daughter of Ed Welch. Ed Welch is kind of famous. If in, in this circles, Ed Welsh was famous, and you might know of Ed Welsh if you've ever read one of his books. So Ed Welsh 
is also a professor at Westminster Seminary, and he teaches counseling. And Ed Walsh is also an elder at the church. It's a pretty remarkable church, okay, <laughs> when you have people like that as, as some of your eld- elders. And Ed and Al are, are close friends. And so Ed's daughter, Lisa Welch, was getting married. And, of course, they were invited to the wedding. And Al started to decline and had to go into the hospital. He, need, he was in some type of, like, blood thinning, um, was in some type of blood thinning medication. And then when he needed to go into the hospital, they thought they couldn't let him out. And the wedding was that week, and it, it, it hurt him tremendously to think that he was going to miss this wedding at a young lady who was essentially his niece. <laughs> She's like a spiritual niece to him because Ed is like a brother to him. And he was going to miss this wedding, and it tore him up. And the fact that it tore him up tore up Libby. <laughs> and... But then while he was in the hospital, they did some type of a scan and found these tumors growing on his brain, and they realized, oh, well, now there's no more point to have you on this other medication, and so we'll let you go to the wedding. (laughs) And so the cancer got worse. Now Al can go to the wedding. But that news didn't come out till basically the night before. And you know what was their reaction, Al and Libby's reaction? To praise God that they would get the gift to go to the wedding. <laughs> so one of the things that, they, that Libby starts, starts, starts to talk about is it was a gift to them that the cancer was so severe that unless, barring a miracle, like just a straight crazy miracle, I wasn't going to make it. And so they knew, um, they knew what they were up for. And so that was, they considered that a blessing. <laughs> and what it began to do is it heightened their whole life. Every day, every moment, every good thing that was given, all of a sudden was realized was a gift from God. And every day, the presence of God became very, very real. Everything that was good, they knew, was a gift from their father. And so, that was really strange. And Libby, there's a place in the book where Libby says, because Al was dying, and then this became even more real to me after he passed away, was all of us, that that heaven became very close to her. What it means to have eternity with Jesus forever started not being this thing that was far away, that space and time started to contract, and she realized that heaven could become very close. Especially after Al passed away, she realized he's with Jesus right now. (laughs) And very soon, I could be with Al and with Jesus too. And so heaven started to become very close to Libby, as opposed to this thing that was very far away, and the hope of eternal life started became this powerful thing, and every piece of good thing that was given, even in the midst of this horrible disease, became this incredibly heightened gift. That's what it was like.
And so the morning, or I think it was the day before, or the, I think it was the morning of the wedding itself, um, they got a surprise visitor. And the surprise visitor was Ed Welsh. <laughs> I thought about this. I thought if I'm dying in a hospital, I've actually been in that place. Some of you know that I got really, really sick around 1999, 2000. I almost didn't make it. So I could actually relate to this. Being in a hospital, being in an ICU unit, and being close to death, okay? And, um, and on the day of a wedding that just prior you didn't think you were going to get to go to, so Ed, you don't even know if one of your best friends knows that you can't make it. On the day you, one of your best friends shows up, on the day of his daughter's wedding, he comes to the hospital to come see you. And that was a glorious gift. I read that. <laughs> I know these two men. I, I can imagine what that must have been like. And they let, release him from the hospital. He goes home. He gets dressed. At this point, I think he's in a wheelchair um, because he was on an experimental type of a uh, Treatment, which apparently produced incredible pain and blisters on his feet, so he couldn't even walk. He goes to the wedding. This is what it's like. It's a beautiful wedding, of course, and they say it's one of the most beautiful weddings they ever went to. And, but when Ed Welsh begins to walk his daughter down the aisle to give her away, um, that becomes tremendously painful to Al. Because Al has five kids of his own. And um, I think he has, I don't know, I can't remember if it's three daughters or two daughters, right, out of the five. And one of them is in high school. And he knows, I'm not going to get to do this for her. What? I'm not going to get to do this for her. And, and he was in pain. He was incredibly joyful. So there he is. He's in a wedding with one of his close friends watching what is effectively his spiritual niece walk down the aisle, tremendously joyful for her and for his friend, and in tremendous pain and grief. So before he's even died, there is already grief. You see it? And his wife knows it too. So she grieves during the wedding. And say so they go through the wedding, and after it's over, they go out to the receiving line. You guys know what it's like. You, you hug and congratulate the couple and you know, father and mother. And, and when Al got to Ed and they embraced, it's like, this is the way Libby puts it. Al knew that Ed knew that when Ed walked down the aisle, 
in a sense, Ed was walking down the aisle for Al, for the future wedding of his daughter. And when they embraced, they just started bawling. Anyway, this is what it's like. And if you know people like this, is this a better life than if everything were to just go perfect? If I'm healthy and good-looking and rich and my kids are healthy and good-looking and rich and they have perfect marriages and perfect kids and we have a perfect house and a perfect mortgage and a perfect car. If you know people like this, it's a better life. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Um, I'm going to read you a portion from uh, Libby's book, Grief Undone. There's a lot of great portions. She's actually a very economical writer, and she doesn't try to be flowery. She just tells it to you. She's just, it's just an honest book. But this is after, um, after Al had passed away, after the funeral, and she's adjusting to life without him. And the grieving goes on. So imagine every wedding... Every wedding, every birthday. Uh, when Al was dying, she was actually a seminary student at Westminster Seminary. <laughs> she was doing their, um, what they call their Master of Arts and Religion, MAR program. And she graduated after he passed away. So even graduations. And she graduated at the same time as their oldest son, who was working on a Master of Divinity. I'm actually a friend with their old uh, friends with her oldest son, and um, his name is Alistair. And can you imagine going to that, that graduation ceremony where the son and you graduate, but the husband, who is a professor at the seminary, is not there? What a searingly painful, yet bittersweet memory that must be. Right? Anyway, here's what, the kind of thing she says. Suffering is real and painful and life-changing, and we shouldn't minimize that. The good news of Jesus' triumph over death and sin is real and hope-filled and life-changing, and we shouldn't minimize that either. You see it? There's suffering which is real. But Jesus' life-changing gift through the gospel, it's real. We have to hold both truths in our hands at the same time and walk a line between them without falling off on either side. I think that initially I fell off on the side of thinking I could minimize the pain for my kids. They had lost their father, and that was terribly sad. Of course, I knew that, but because the gospel brings so much hope, and probably because I'm a fixer by nature, I guess I thought that if I could just do everything right as a parent, I could somehow cushion my kids from a lot of the pain of grief. If I could be loving enough, patient enough, encouraging enough, and strong enough, and if I could support them in just the right way, they wouldn't hurt too badly, even though their father was gone. I could somehow make up for their loss and make everything somewhat okay. 
But the truth finally came home to me one day that this was impossible. I could never be both parents to them. I could never make up for the loss of their dad. He was gone. And no amount of good parenting on my part was going to fill that void. The pain and grief of his absence were facts I couldn't change and could hardly even touch, in fact. Rebecca, it's one of their, their children, she's, she's, I think, their oldest daughter, has commented, losing someone you love is like losing an arm. If you lose a limb, you learn how to cope, how to compensate, how to do life one-armed, how to carry on. Eventually, the new state of affairs even starts to feel somewhat normal, but you are still missing an arm. She's absolutely right. I suppose we often fall off on the other side, too, minimizing the hope of the gospel, the good news about Jesus triumphing over death, setting us free from its power, and making us part of his family. That good news does a lot to undo the sadness of suffering in specific, tangible, and specific real-life situations. For us, the gospel took the sting out of death, It did so for Al because when he died, he began to really live in God's presence, full of joy, wholeness, and wonder. And it did so for the rest of us because we knew where Al was and could delight in the joys he was experiencing. Can you see that? He actually became more joyful as he was dying. And I can tell you, that's not a lie. I watched Al die. She's absolutely right. We also knew we would someday be together with him again. I also knew that the Lord would be a father to my children. Because of his covenant promises throughout the Bible, he would always be with them, listen to them, guide them, comfort them, strengthen them, and encourage them. He would never die and leave them as Al had to do. The Bible is full of God's care for the fatherless, so I knew he would watch over them, provide for their needs, and protect them. And here's a part I also want you to hear. And the gospel gave us a second family. Our own family is wonderful, and I'm so thankful for the way they loved and supported us, even from far away. But because of the gospel, we had another family nearby too, and that's the church. And I know this church. It's New Life Presbyterian Church. It's not so much different than our church. We had people who grieved with us, prayed for us, and helped us with all kinds of practical things. Although their dad was gone, my kids would be around men who would love them and show them what it looks like to live as men of faith and faithfulness. The benefits of Jesus' death and resurrection were real and brought genuine relief and blessing. The gospel doesn't necessarily alter the circumstances of suffering in our lives, Suffering is real and painful. It may continue to be painful for a long, long time. The gospel didn't change the fact that my children were still without their dad. Al was gone and he wasn't coming back. I couldn't erase the pain and grief of that for my kids, but the gospel does set our suffering in the context of a bigger reality. That Jesus came to reverse the curse of sin and death And already, not tomorrow, already his victory is turning back its effects.
I just stop there. Hmm? See? And we can taste that now and live in that now. We're going to part two, special needs. Have any of you heard of a movie called The Dropbox? I don't know how many of you saw this movie. It was only here in, shown in town for just a few days, which <laughs> upsets me, quite frankly. Right? Um, if you haven't heard of this movie, it's getting a lot of attention. It's actually getting straight up even international attention. You can go online and see YouTube clips where they have stories about this movie in other countries. But the story of the Dropbox, if you haven't heard of it, um, is about a guy named uh, uh, E. Jong-Lak, Pastor Lee, Jong-Lak Lee, that he's a Korean guy, and he pastors a church. So, um, so in Korean, the church is called Chusarang Gongdongche Kyoe, which literally means, for those of you who don't know Korean, the love of the Lord Community Church. It's a, and it's a small church. So there was a documentary movie that came out uh, made by a young man named Brian Ivey, who was not a Christian when he set out on this project to make this movie. He read about this story of this man who, set, who made a box that was called the drop box, or he calls it the baby box, to deal with the problem of abandonment. So in the city of Seoul, Korea, apparently the shame is intense. And the way the laws work, uh, when there are young women who get pregnant and they don't, they don't abort their child, but they don't feel they can continue to um, have their child, what they often do is they just abandon their child. That's what happens. There are kids, literally a kid will be left in an alley. And um, if it's the winter, that child will die of exposure throughout the night. This just happens. Seoul, Korea happens. It's as modern a city as any city in America. It's a rich city. And something like 300-some-odd kids in a given year, this happens. And this pastor put out a box, which he called the baby box, where if you, and then he put out word that said, please don't just abandon your baby. Put the baby in the box. (laughs) And we will make sure your baby is taken care of. And that's the story came out in the news. Brian Ivey read this story in the newspaper while reading. He said, I was reading a physical newspaper over breakfast, and I just knew I had to do this story. So he's a, he, he's a student at UC, uh, USC uh, Film School. He started this project. I mean, that's a whole other crazy story in and of itself. There, these remar- it's, when, he, when he started this project, people started giving him money to do this. Christians started coming out of the woodwork. And so uh, something that he thought was going to become a 10-minute film started to grow bigger and bigger. And then he took a team, and he ended up going to Korea and living at, in the pastor's house, which is basically by the church. And it's a small church. It's... it's it's like a storefront church with a, just like a storefront sign. 
It's a very humble little church. And he went to this church, and he spent, and he basically, I guess the pastor just let him live there, because he's a really nice guy. And I don't even know how they communicated, because this, I'm sure this young guy doesn't speak Korean. And, um, and they somehow just communicated, and he made this movie. And I want to let you, I want to, when this movie comes out, and becomes, so a handful of us got to watch this movie. Um, my wife and I watched it. We took two, a couple of my kids. I went with Frank, Nancy, and um, we watched this movie. It's an amazing movie. <laughs> and and uh, why did, and here's what, you know, without going too much into the story, I'm just going to just show you two portions. One is, why did this Pastor Lee do this? Pastor Lee had two children. He has a daughter and a son. The daughter's fine, but his son was born with, um, with, with some type of a... When, he, when the son was born, he had this huge, almost like a balloon on, on his face. So when he, he immediately knew this son was disabled. And apparently his son has some kind of severe form of uh, cerebral palsy. And so his son has severe special needs. And when his son was very young, Pastor Lee said that he used to just rail and cry out to God, why did you do this? But over time, he began to see that God, he began to repent and said, no, actually, my son is still made in your image. And he began to more and more see the beauty of Christ in loving his son. His son today is 29 years old. And you can see his picture of, you can see him in the movie. And over time, he and his wife, as they began to raise their son, gave them a love for people who were hurt. And a lot of the babies that are abandoned, guess what? A lot of them have special needs. Special needs children are abandoned. And because in the society, it's a very perfectionistic society. Um, There's a, if one of the things, it's just a normal rite of passage, apparently, in Korea, in Seoul, at least in certain circles of Seoul, maybe not every kid, for kids to get plastic surgery. <laughs> and so um, he began to love, these, to love his son. And then when he became older and he began to grieve at the abandonment of babies throughout the city, it really wasn't a leap for him to say, Give me your child, even if your child has special needs. And a number of the children in the movie you'll see has special needs. And yet, when you, you could see this camera going around in that house and look at those kids as they are loved, they're as human as can be, as beautiful as can be, as wonderful as can be. And if you don't cry in that movie, I don't know if you're a human being, quite frankly. You're just not a human being. <laughs> I was sitting next to a friend of mine who's a pastor, and he just said, it just all throughout the movie, it was like waterworks. He said, it was just like, oh. <laughs> you just see these kids, and it's like waterworks. He's like, there's one particular child who just blew me away. There's a boy in the movie um, and um, he was adopted. So currently, I think they have 20 kids. They are watching. Tw- they have a number of volunteers. 
from their church and their other circles who come to help them. But they have 20 kids in their house. So this older gentleman, I mean, he's, he's not a young man. And he has his own physical issues, which they talk about in the movie too. And when you look at this man and his wife, when I looked at them, I, I wanted to start laughing because they looked just like people who are like 60 years old in our church. I mean, really, there are couples in our church who just look just like them. I'm not kidding. <laughs> there are couples in our church, when I, when I see, listen to them talk, I'm thinking like, oh, that's just like, and I could just think like, you know, a handful of older couples in our church. And it made me want to just start laughing. Because <laughs> these are not unfamiliar people. I'm thinking, I know this person. I mean, really, th- this guy could be somebody really just walking in our church. And they, except they have 20 kids many of them who are special needs that they, that they raise. And one of the boys that they adopted, he apparently was born without a certain number of fingers. And so when he raises his hand, he has, I don't know, he has a couple of stubs on his fingers. And when he talks, he, he talked about how he was embarrassed and he was always nervous about whether the kids would accept him. But when this boy talks, it's an amazing kid. You know which kid I'm talking about, right, Frank? And he talks, he says, and when I grow older, his dream when he grows older is to do what my dad does. And he's talking about Pastor Lee. <laughs> and you see him walking around with his father, Pastor Lee. This boy with, uh, you know, only like a couple fingers on one hand. And, um, and, uh, and the movie tells you that he was, I guess they have class presidents in Korea, even at, you know, in fourth grade or something like that. And apparently that year he had been elected class president. Far from being rejected by his peers, he was quite esteemed by his peers, apparently. That kid is an amazing kid. And if it weren't for the cross that Pastor Lee had to bear, from his own son he would never gained another son who after Pastor Lee passed away will be a father to many more children see this is on the other side of the cross if we pick up our cross and you say we wouldn't even have this movie if there was not the cross of loving his own son, there wouldn't be a movie by a young man named Brian Ivy. And Brian Ivy was transformed. He became a Christian by living with Pastor Lee and watching this happen. And now this movie is going out. The story is going around internationally. It's even controversial. It's making governments debate how to care for abandoned children. So literally, because Pastor Lee's own son had severe cerebral palsy, thousands and thousands of children around the world will be better cared for because of the cross he picked up. See? This is what it looks like. And if you look at Pastor Lee's life, you can't tell me that guy's not a joyful man. I'm like, I want to grow up, and when I grow up, <laughs> I want to be like him. <laughs> That's what I think about. I can see why that boy wants to be like his daddy. I want to be like his daddy. <laughs> I'm thinking, like, I want to be like 
your daddy. <laughs> um, part three, the powerful comfort of the cross. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 says this. And I don't know if you, any of you track with our quiet times. Usually I pick quiet time passages which are you know, somewhat at least loosely relevant to whatever I preached that Sunday. So all the passages this week were related to this passage in Luke chapter 9 about picking up your cross and about suffering. But, and I never thought of 2 Corinthians 1 in light of Luke chapter 9. But this is what it says, and when I was doing the quiet time this week on this passage, it just, I realized how tremendously this is all of one piece. Listen. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Because if there's suffering in your life, what do you need? Comfort. And comfort comes in all kinds of forms. The God of all comfort who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. Listen. With the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, see, we will share in His sufferings. That's picking up the cross. So through Christ, we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. See, the church picks each other up. Not by just saying avoid suffering. Not by being angry at God for allowing suffering. See, God isn't a good God if he just makes everything so-called perfect. He makes it really perfect, not apart from the suffering, but in and through it. He'll change us as better people, deeper people. And then he forms a whole kind of community where there's affliction, and then there's comfort, and then there's comfort, which goes into other people, and the glory of God spills out into the community. That's what happens. Our hope is for you, for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. And for the last picture that I'd like to just give you to close out my message today is... Um, I, I've talked about this in the past. The last picture I'd like to give you is Celebrate Recovery. It's one of the most beautiful ministries that I've ever, ever seen. Um, I'm hoping, and one of the reasons I keep dropping this into my sermons is it is my hope that some of you would want to do Celebrate Recovery right here in our church for our neighbors right here in San Jose. Um, Celebrate Recovery was started by John Baker. John Baker is a memory of uh, he's a member of Saddleback Church, which is one of the most famous churches in the whole world, Rick Warren's church. And um, John Baker was an alcoholic who became a Christian. And he began to realize that when he went to his AA meetings, he wanted to talk about Jesus because Jesus was 
the power in his life which helped him beat alcohol. But they didn't want to hear about Jesus. And then when he went into the church, he wanted to talk about his alcoholism and the suffering that alcoholics experience. And yet people in the church were afraid to talk about suffering. See? why? One of the reasons I'm talking about this is because we're trying to sanitize our life in life apart from the cross. And so then he wrote a proposal to his pastor of how they can have recovery, but which was Christ-centered. It was a 12-page proposal. Rick Warren called him in his office and said, you're perfect. You should lead this. And he goes, I'm not an elder. I'm not a pastor. How can I lead this? But yet he did. And over time, this thing has grown, and it's an international thing now. And if, so last year, our, our, your brother Jen and I, we went to the Celebrate Recovery Summit um, in August. It's also in August again this year, which is down at Saddleback Church. And thousands of people come to learn about Saddleback, to learn about Celebrate Recovery, which is this ministry. It's a 12-step program that's Christ-centered. And it's not only for alcoholics, it's for people with what they call hurts, habits, and hang-ups. Because, by the way, you don't have to be a drug addict to have depression. You don't have to be an alcoholic to have anger issues. So hurts, habits, and hang-ups. And when you go there, which you will meet, most of the people who are there who have great intensity and passion to reach other people, guess what? They were former drug addicts who reached through Jesus. Somebody helped them. Many of the people who were there were redeemed through celebrate recovery through Jesus. Why are they there? Because they want to pass on this comfort. You know, John Baker, you know who leads Celebrate Recovery, who's one of the key leaders of Celebrate Recovery? is not John Baker. It's John Baker Jr. Guess what? His own son, addiction tends to run the family. His own son was a drug addict. His father did alcohol. His son did drugs. And how did his son, even though he grew up in the church, how did his son finally come to Jesus? It was only after Jesus rescued him from the addictions. And when you see John Baker Jr. up there, his, his son is like a better leader than his dad. It's amazing. You, you see the comfort being spread. You can almost see it from John to his son, John Jr. Jen and I met a gentleman who was from like, the Sacramento area. He was an alcoholic. And he almost wrecked his life. And when he met him, he just told me, oh yeah, because I, I was a drunk. Until the Lord reached me. And this, this man was such a gentle soul. <laughs> and when Jen and I met him, you felt like you were in the presence of somebody better than you. And it's hard to believe when you're looking at this guy that he was an alcoholic. If one of these days you ever want, if you're ever feeling low or spiritually just far from God, or if you're feeling cynical and angry, let me give you a suggestion. Go on your computer, Google, celebrate recovery testimony, 
And there are these video testimonies of real-life people that were reached. So I was listening to some of these yesterday. You can't believe these stories. There's a... There's this one woman. This is a woman in Manchester, England. Manchester, England. There's a testimony. And I was listening to this woman's testimony. And she grew up in a family where her parents' marriage was horrible. And somewhere when she was about seven or eight, she started getting sexually molested by her brothers. And she didn't start to come out of this, this whole destruction. Then she started doing drugs later on. She didn't start to come out of this until celebrate recovery. <laughs> Affliction and suffering. And if we didn't know how hard it was, how hurting life was, how would we know how good Jesus is? You understand how good God is. <laughs> and until you know suffering, and then until you can know Christ in the suffering, you can't really know how good God is. You, 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 you know why a lot of American Christians have a really shallow view of Christianity? Because we're running away from all the suffering instead of processing the suffering. We even move to neighborhoods so that we can get away from those people. <laughs> That's what we even do. And then we like, we like going to the, the, the malls and the stores that are, that are completely fake, <laughs> where everything is perfect. That's what we, those are the things that we like. And yet, guess where God is? <laughs> God likes to be right in the hurt. And when you go there with the cross, you'll meet an unbelievably beautiful God who are turning, hurting people into beautiful people. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Libby Groves and Al and Ed, for Pastor Lee and his wife, his beautiful wife. And I wish I could remember his son's name I want to keep remembering his son's name because that boy is probably going to do amazing, amazing things for you. Thank you for John Baker, John Baker Jr., for all the people that June and I met. It was like three days of meeting people, some of the most wonderful, glorious people. I didn't want to leave, <laughs> Lord, that, that conference. And it was like a taste of heaven itself. A taste of heaven itself. Because you are a, a real God. Not a fairy tale God. And you come into real life. And in this world, real life hurts. And you are a God who is glorious, not apart from the hurt, but in and through it. And so I pray that this seed of what the gospel is, what the gospel can do through the death and resurrection, through the cross, if we would follow you to the cross, 
how we can meet you and know you. I want you, Jesus. We want you. And I pray that you would make us brave enough and believe enough that we'd pick up the cross and go into the suffering or in and around us and find you. In Jesus' name. Amen.